that in advance, but I always think about it the second I sit down. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome, interneters. It's exciting to have you with us. Um, I thought it was worthy of mention that today is Gav's first session at the new church. So lots of them, lots of the Ryans and the Joneses and others are there to support him. So that's why we're a little bit lighter on today. But also it's the weekend before holidays and, you know, people like to get a jump start. I know the private schools, I'm pretty sure they start on Monday with their holidays. As they always said when I was at private school, you pay more, you get less education. <laughs> I felt like they still smashed it into us though. Alrighty. Well, here we are. We are in Unit 4 and very, very cleverly, Unit 4 is two parts and we've got Easter in the middle. So I'm going to leave you on tenterhooks for a whole two weeks because I had said, it doesn't matter when Easter falls in the whole program, it's not going to matter at all. And then I remembered that this was two parts and of course this is where Easter falls. (laughs) So... That's all right, but it's two parts because it contains a huge whack of scripture. So you'll be very pleased to know that we leave Genesis today, we finish Genesis, and we go right through to two Chronicles. No, no, Leviticus. Two Chronicles is next time. So we're going to cover the second half of Genesis, the second two-thirds of Genesis, and all the way through to the end of Leviticus. So strap yourselves in. If you thought we were going a bit slowly before, we're making up for it now. Now, I wanted to acknowledge, as I do each week, though I forgot in week two, that this is not material prepared by me. This is Vaughan Roberts's material. Um, he's a minister in the UK, um, and I love his stuff. He's written some really, really helpful stuff. Um, so, yeah, I heartily endorse his materials. Um, so, yeah, so if you want to watch back on this, you can watch the video from today, or you can um, watch his video recap of today's um, session. Um, and then there's the notes that are with that. And I don't have any spare copies today. I'm sorry for that. I will make sure I have spare copies next week for those who may have missed out or have left theirs at home. So there are notes to follow along with if you'd like to, but... You don't have to. It is fine. Okay, so unit one, two, and three, we had three Ps. Can anyone remember what they were? What was the first one when God made the world? The the first one was when he set the pattern. Awesome. Pattern of the kingdom. None of you has, except for Michael and Ian, none of you has notes out. So I'm impressed. You're going to have to, oh, and Rachel, you're going to have to, um, and probably Anne, she's got a fancy iPad and her notes. Anne and her iPad. I always feel a bit intimidated when I see Anne and her iPad. (laughs) I might need some correction today. Sorry? She is. She is. She's she's the queen of spider solitaire. Right. No, no, that's fair enough. I'm ex- yep. With you. Uh, unit two, what was the next, the next thing? When, when Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the garden? Perished. Perished. Nice one. I heard whispers around. It's because you're wearing face masks, isn't it? That's why I can't hear you. Yeah. Unit three is when we had Abraham and the... 
God made promise. God made a whole heap of promises to him. And so then we come to unit four, which is the partial kingdom. So it's where we see some of these things start to be sort of, this is the, the pattern's been set, uh, the, the sin has been created and everything's gone awry. We've had promises to Abraham to say that this will be undone through his family line. And then we've got this partial kingdom where we see that partially fulfilled in the people of Israel across the beginning of the Old Testament. So, and what have we been tracking? We've been tracking that the people are God's... I said it in the sentence. The people are God's... People in God's... Yes, under God's... Rule and blessing. Command is a good guess, but yeah, rule and blessing. So, and in this part, we add king as well. So, with God's king in control. So, um, that's where we're going. But today, because there's so much material, we're just going to do people and rule and blessing. And then the second half of the section will be um, in, their, in his place and under his kingship. So, that's where we're going today. So, we've had the promises to Abraham of people and blessing and land that we saw last week. Um, We see these totally fulfilled in Jesus, but partially fulfilled in the nation of Israel. So that's where we are with the partial kingdom. So what we see when we begin our notes, uh, God's people is what we're going to look at first, and that's tracked through Genesis 12 to Exodus 18 as the people are sort of put together as a group. So the promise that we've heard is I will make you into a great nation, which I repeated quite a few times last week, Genesis 12 too. But it was immediate that there was a problem because Abram and Sarah, or by that stage Abraham and Sarah, were really, really old and past the age of childbearing and they hadn't been able to have kids at all. So Abraham waited for a little while and then he thought, I know, God's plan must need some help. I must have to kick it along a bit, um, which is, you know, I've never thought that at all. Um, So he he has a son called Ishmael through Sarah's maid, Hagar. But it becomes apparent quite quickly, God says to him, no, 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 no. My kingdom is not going to be run through Ishmael. So unfortunately, Abraham does the sensible thing and kicks Hagar and Ishmael out. Charming man. And they are known colloquially from then on as the footing of where the Muslim people come through. So they identify Ishmael as their... I hope I'm remembering correctly because otherwise I'm leading you up the garden path. Um, Ishmael is then the father of um, sort of the the Islamic people. Um, So then Abraham waits, as God tells him to, and finally um, Isaac is born and God says yes that is my man that is who it was supposed to be by Sarah um, she laughed when she found out and then she laughed when he was born um, and he was totally miraculous similar to where we see the birth of the virgins uh, of the son to the virgin um, totally miraculous only God's intervention could make sure that happened um, so what what that's telling us is that Only God can make his promises come true. 
We don't need to do all sorts of machinations here on earth to make that happen. But actually, only God can make his promises come true. Um, and he has, it's in his best interest to do that. He knows that that's, he's made the promise, he's going to fulfill it, and so he will make it happen. And he often uses miracles to do that. Um, but we can get quite impatient. impatient. Anyway, so Abraham has Isaac. Isaac grows up, and he has two sons, Jacob and... Esau, my um, my dad's favourite. He's he's not he's not a Christian. Um, his favourite verse is um, from Two Kings, I think it is, uh, where it's uh, my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a smooth man. Um, he thinks that's pretty funny. I think it's the King James version because I can't find it in mine. But yeah, he thinks that's pretty hilarious. I am a smooth man. Um, so what we've then got is we've got Esau and Jacob. Esau is the firstborn, traditionally the inheritor. Jacob is the secondborn. And through his sneaky bits roundabout things, he actually manages to steal Esau's birthright from Isaac. Um, he's actually quite an unpleasant character. He's like a bit underhanded, not, not amazing. Um, but what that serves to show us is that no one actually deserves the set-apartness that God gives us. No one deserves it. He wasn't the greatest man, but God had chosen that it was going to be through his family line that the Saviour would come. And so no one deserves it. And we are reminded of um, Ephesians 2.9, which I think will come up, that our salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. It's flickering really badly, so I can't see it, but I'm trusting that it's there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it's purely through God's choice um, that, um, that Jacob was, was the one. But, like I said, it sends us that message that no one, no one deserves the favour that God gives. And then Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom, the youngest, is Joseph and the favourite. And um, Joseph, Joseph doesn't necessarily go about things the wisest ways. He provokes his brothers a bit by sort of going, I keep having these dreams about you, how you have to bow down to me. And, you know, like that's, if you've got 11 brothers, telling them that you're better than them when you're the baby, I don't know, did you ever do this, Hutch? I know you don't have 11, but you've what, four brothers and a sister? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, stop when they hit perfection. Yeah, yeah. See, I argue that my parents were trying to repeat perfection and when they worked out they couldn't, they stopped. So, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm with you. But if you'd stood up and said, <laughs> I'm better than you, you would have got smashed, yeah? Yeah, still do. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so did Joseph, really. He wasn't the smartest man sometimes. Um, none of them were, really. And to be honest, are we? Um, always the smartest people. Um, so then Joseph um, is sold into slavery by his brothers. They tell uh, his dad that he has died. And through no fault of his own, he's actually, um, he escapes to Egypt. He is falsely imprisoned. He's accused of something he didn't do. Um, and then he is miraculously released from prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams because actually whilst he was a bit silly to interpret the dreams the way he did to the brothers that he did. He's actually gifted in dream interpretation and so he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and Pharaoh said, I need you on my side. I will make you my, essentially my prime minister and you will look after 
the, the grain stores that I have, amongst many other things. And so then, when Israel went into famine, or when um, the land of Canaan went into famine, and uh, the family of... of, jo- of I, I get confused. Jacob's family, the sons, the 12, the 11 remaining, um, had to go to Egypt to ask for food to be able to survive the famine. They ended up coming in front of Joseph. And they had to throw, himselves on, throw themselves on his mercy. And because Joseph had become a truly lovely man by that point, he, in the power of God, was able to forgive them. They didn't even recognise him, but he was able to forgive them. Um, and so they were then able to survive the famine and, and the family line could continue. So what we can see there is that God is always in complete control. God is able to use even great sin and suffering to fulfill his promises. So even though Joseph was essentially run out of his family, his father was told he was dead, he was then falsely imprisoned, he was elevated to a position that meant that he could look after his family when the time came so that the promise would be fulfilled. Now his suffering was innocent, like I said, and that totally points us towards the cross where we see another example of God being in complete control. He's able to use even great sin and innocent suffering to fulfil his promises. So Joseph is one of those amazing foreshadowing. The thing that I find amazing too is it's picked up the, the, um, the Bible. <laughs> the, one, the children's one that I love. The Jesus Storybook Bible, thank you. Darren is my small group leader. He's heard me talk about it a lot. The Jesus Storybook Bible paints a really clear picture of the foreshadowing between Joseph and, um, and Jesus, even to the point where he talks about that, like Joseph was sold into slavery for silver by his brothers, Jesus was betrayed by Judah, Judas <laughs> by selling, him, selling um, the information to the, for the Pharisees, which I think is just... Again, J.K. Rowling's got nothing on God. It's just so intertwined and neat and perfect. I love it. So that's kind of where we're at. That's the promise. That's where it's kind of being fulfilled all the way through. Then we've got God's people, the partial fulfillment of God and his people becoming reunited. So we then track Abraham and his descendants all the way from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50 and a lot of that is included in that story but as we um, a lot of that story is included in that in that series but as we get to the end we see that they've gone from a position of power to a position of slavery the pharaoh has changed he's brought in new um, new hierarchies and over 400 years they are now totally enslaved to the Egyptian people um, we see that in Exodus 1 to 18, they go from, they have then their period of redemption from slavery um, in Egypt. So we see that God is the God who saves. So Exodus 2, 23 to 24, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And so he's not forgotten his people. He's aware of where they are. 
he now has a great multitude of people that are his. Um, and so he, he, he brings them out of Egypt. It's time. Um, he must act for his own people. If they are indeed his people, then he must act. Um, he must raise them out of this situation. So he calls upon Moses. And we see this moment where Moses has been, um, he's been raised in the palace. He's been um, feeling the pressure of love for his own people. Um, and in defence of one of his people, he actually kills a, a Roman, Roman, I'm jumping ahead of myself, an Egyptian soldier, slave master, um, and escapes into the desert because he knows he's done the wrong thing by doing that. He's actually um, accelerated the problem. My words are escaping me today. That's all right. Um, and so then we see him at the burning bush. We see this bush that is being, uh, being burned but not consumed. And there God has the conversation with him that says, you need to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses is unsure about what all that will look like. Um, but at that point... God reveals to Moses his new name. So he says, uh, God said to Moses, and we've got the verse somewhere, um, I am who I am. Now that word um, is known in Hebrew as the tetragrammaton, which is fun. And there is a version of the YMCA that is with the tetragrammaton um, on YouTube, so it's worth looking up because um, it's quite funny. But um, that is what we um, have historically translated as Jehovah, but which we now translate as Yahweh. Um, so whenever you see the little L-O-R-D capitalized in the Bible, that's where it's got Yahweh um, or Jehovah as, um, as in the original Hebrew. And that means I am who I am. Another way to translate this is I will be who I will be. Um, and I, I have always found I am who I am makes no grammatical sense to me. I'm like, what that, you know, I am the great I am. Well, <laughs> amazing. That explains nothing. Um, but when you think about it in the whole I will be who I will be, I am who I am, the I am has sent me to you. Crazy. But when you think about it that way, it's actually... Um, basically saying to, to Moses, watch me and learn who I am. I am entirely true to my character, so I will only ever behave in the way that is true to my character. So watch me interact with my people throughout history and you will know me. And we have the enormous benefit of having hundreds and hundreds of years worth of ancient texts to read to see who God is but we also have a personal experience in our own lives of who God is and that is how he shows us who he is he says I am entirely consistent to my character watch me trust in me I will always 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 do what I promise um which is encouraging. For Moses, though, he hadn't seen a lot of that. He certainly didn't have scriptures. So it was a kind of wait-and-see moment almost. Um, but, of course, Moses gets a front-row seat as to what God is going to do because he then goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people free. Um, and we, uh, we know that the Pharaoh just doesn't. He's got a whole slave force that is really beneficial to his people and he does not want to let them go. So we know that because God 
is the hero of every story in the Bible. It's not the people in the stories, but it's actually God who enables them and actually follows through. Because essentially the Bible is a book about God rather than people. We know that he does what he needs to do to make it happen. So we have the ten plagues or the nine plagues that come across to make Pharaoh try and change his mind, to make things so uncomfortable for him that he will accept that Moses and his people need to go. Um, And it culminates, he still doesn't change his mind, it culminates in... um, In the Passover, God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh that every firstborn son will be killed this night. My angel will pass over the whole nation and every firstborn son will be killed. But I want to protect my people. I want them to be able to go. So if you sacrifice a lamb, and there are all sorts of instructions on how they do this, um, and paint the door frame with the blood of the lamb... My angels will pass over that house and they will be safe. So what we have here already is salvation by substitution. We've got a lamb that dies in the place of the firstborn son in every Israelite family. And that's what happens. So that night, Israelite people paint their door frames with blood the angel passes over and every firstborn Egyptian is killed. And so they wake up to the sound of mourning and wailing and just like that's, that's so many people in our church. <laughs> if it was the firstborn son, like if it's not you, it might be your dad or it might be your uncle or it might be your grandfather or it might be like every, fam- every single family is affected. Um, so yeah, every firstborn son. And so Pharaoh relents um, and he says, okay, take them away. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And then he changes his mind. Um, And so we've had salvation by substitution where the firstborn son and then the lamb dies in the place of the Israelites. And then we have salvation by conquest that we see in Exodus 14. So we see the defeat of Pharaoh. Moses gets to um, the Red Sea. And is stuck and God parts the waters and the whole of the Israelites walk through. And then as soon as the Egyptians arrive, God lets the waters go and the Egyptians are drowned. So you've already got like so many Egyptians died that day. And then you've got the whole Egyptian army that is remaining that just gets totally washed away in the sea. Um, And so we see Pharaoh's defeat. And so it's what we see then in the cross. We see salvation by substitution. Jesus dies in our place. His blood covers our sin on the cross. And we've got salvation by conquest. Evil is defeated at the cross as well. So it's an amazing foreshadowing of what is to come and what Jesus does in one man on the cross too. It's huge. Okay, so that's our God's people. God's people now have been led out of Egypt. God has put his stamp on them and said, you are mine, I have you, here we go. We're moving on. And then we see God's rule and blessing, which comes from Exodus 19 through to Leviticus. So God's rule and blessing. The promise is, I will bless you, from Genesis 12 to... And the partial fulfilment of that is that God gives his law. Uh, The Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, given at Mount Sinai. So there's a whole lot of storming and all this kind of stuff. And Moses goes up the mountain and God gives him the law. 
What's important to recognise here is that salvation has come before the law was given. He's rescued his people. Salvation has been given. Then the law. They're already his people, shown by his rescue. What we see from that is that it is always by undeserved grace, never by rule-keeping, that our salvation comes. We tend to think negatively towards the law, but it's actually a wonderful thing to be under the law of God. It means you're his people. Now that the Israelites were living as God's people, they must live in a way that reflects his character. And actually, truly reflecting his character is the best way to live. He made us. He knows what the smart way to live is. He gives us the law to help us do that. But there are functions to that law that aren't just about putting rules in place. So God's law reveals our sin. Uh, Romans 3.20 tells us that. It highlights our disobedience. So the law is there to say, this is how far you are from where things should be. God's law reveals our saviour. So Galatians 3.24 says that. It points to Jesus as the only one who fully obeyed it and taking on our penalty reduces the effect or removes the effect. So because we are under the weight of the law, if we are still before Jesus, the fact that Jesus then comes along and reveals, removes that weight means that we are, we, we are looking forward to that time of, G, of the law revealing our saviour as Jesus. And God's law reveals his standards. So Matthew 5.19 refers to this. It shows the followers, followers of Jesus how he wants us to live. Um, so it's still applicable today though a lot of it is contextual. My favourite one is you must wear four tassels on the corners of your cloak. Not one I do every day. Um, so, yes, yeah, so some of, them, some of them are contextual. Now, he's given them their law, the law, and so he's given them his rule, but the blessing is that he also wants to give, him, give them his presence. <clears throat> and so the tabernacle is built as a home for his presence. And there are enormous instructions about how to build the tabernacle. Um, what I love about the Old Testament sometimes is that you get, this is how to build the tabernacle, and then this is how they built the tabernacle, and then thank you for letting us build the tabernacle this way. Like it's just three times. It's just it's great for sending you to sleep, for ever feeling a bit wide awake at night, just read about the building of the tabernacle or the building of the temple or any of the, because three times. So it shows that the people were faithful to what they'd been told to do, but yeah, it's lengthy. Um, and that runs from Exodus 25 to 31 and 35 to 40, so big chunks on the tabernacle. Because the thing that's important is that the purpose of redemption is not just to be happier in the land, but it's actually relationship. The purpose of our redemption is to be in relationship with God. And so his presence is important for that. So the tabernacle was built because the question then becomes, how can a holy God live among sinful people without destroying them? It's impossible. He can only be in the presence of goodness and holiness and sinlessness, and that is not what we are. (laughs) So he gives a number of different ways. The building of the tabernacle itself ensures protection 
of the people uh, because only very limited numbers of people could go in. So there were layers of entrance where certain people could get to certain points. By the time you get to the end where the Ark of the Covenant is, there's a little table on your table drawing on your handout. You've got the most holy place that is sort of the back of the holy place um, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant lives, um, the tablets that have the law written on them, the Ten Commandments written on them um, and there's a massive, massive curtain would have weighed extraordinary amounts, just huge um, and, and only once a year can one person, the high priest, go behind that curtain and make full restitution for the people. Um, but every day sacrifices have to be made. So not only has he protected the bulk of the people by putting himself in this sort of very small space that only one person can enter, he gives them sacrifice. So Leviticus shows us that the sacrifice is that the people lay hands on an animal as a representation, so it's normally a goat. Uh, Sometimes the process is to lay hands on two goats and then the two goats, one represents the, the sacrifice, so that one is sacrificed and its blood is used in worship, and the second goat is sent out of the community as a, a representation of how far their sin has been sent from them. Um, and so the blood is shed, the animal is sent out, um, and that is the representative of our sin being taken on by somebody else. So the priest kills one of the lambs is a substitute to pre- and presents its blood um, in, the, in the tabernacle. And it dies so that they live. So what we've got, though, is something that is obviously not necessarily permanently effective. Like these are just animals. They're not, they're not the image of God the way that we are. And so they can only do it, they can only last so long, these sacrifices. And so they did it every day. Every day these goats would be sacrificed or other animals, whatever they could afford, would be sacrificed to cover their sin. Now, one of the great kindnesses in this is that it sounds horrendous, and it is horrendous, but the great kindness is God didn't have to accept those sacrifices. He didn't have to make a way for people to make restitution. He could have just said, you're sinful, I'm not interested. But he said, I will accept those animals on your behalf, which is an enormous kindness. Um, and so otherwise we'd be up the creek. (laughs) So it dies so that they live and that they can still approach God. So what we see here is that they are his people, rescued by him and with something of his presence with them. He promises that his presence dwells with him, but it's not him. It's his presence. It's not God. And it's restrictive and follows the rules of the tabernacle. So not everyone has perfect access and it needs all that sacrifice to be done. So what we see is a shadow of what's to come. It's still a long way from where we are today. But it's working to a point. And that's where we're going to stop. So as I said, in a fortnight... We'll be looking at Unit 5, which is the second half of the partial kingdom. So that's place and king. So that will take us, so God's place will take us from Numbers to Joshua, and that's where they entered the promised land. Um, and then king will be judges to 1 king, Kings 11, so um, when we get um, the beginnings of the king system that he sort of brings into place. But that's where we are. 
How much longer? Oh, that never happens. This is so good. Okay, well, I will pray and I will take a lot more than that minute because I just inevitably do. <laughs> Lord God, we thank you for your word that we can read it and interpret and understand it. We thank you for its highs and its lows, um, for the things that we can learn uh, about the people Israel and um, our ancestors. But we thank you more than anything that it reveals who you are, that we can see how you have acted throughout history and we can call you Yahweh because we know who you are because of how consistent you are to your character and that you will fulfil your promises. We thank you that we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years of evidence of that happening. And so we can look forward to, with complete certainty, your fulfilment of your promise to send your son again and bring about the new heavens and new earth where we will worship with all of those who came before and all who will come after us. Lord, we thank you that you make these things known to us by your spirit that he helps us to understand, that he helps us to make your words and your, uh, your scriptures something that we experience in our lives, that he prompts and guides us, that he shapes and moulds us so that we are more like the image you created us to be, people with a character that matches yours. We look forward to your growth in us, that you would continue making us more like yourself, that we would be better imitators of your son as a result of what we learn and see in your scriptures and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this for your children too, our children, for those who are out in Sunday school today or um, are homesick or whatever reason it happens to be, um, that through our modelling and through your direct interaction in their lives, that they too would grow up to know you and to know the safety and security and the hope that there is in knowing who you are and putting our trust in you to do the things that you say you will do. We thank you for today. We thank you so much for Easter. That means that we are able to stand this side of the cross and know what you've done and trust in Jesus and know that he has come to fulfil all things perfectly. And so we pray as we head into Easter next weekend that you would help us to focus well, to remember well and to worship well as a result of what we remember on Easter weekend. And we pray these things and thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.